Good morning, all. Uh, welcome to this presentation. Uh, my name is Narayan, and with me, I have Zab. Um, and together, we will be talking about getting the most from your elastic load balancing for different workloads. Over the years, both me and Zab have got a lot of questions from customers uh, regarding ELB. And what we have tried to do today is to actually put together all those questions in this presentation and cover the answers for most of them. And, and hopefully, that will be useful to you as you think about your workloads and what are some of the best practices that you should be doing with ELB and your workloads. So just a call out is that we have one more session today um, around security and how you can offload the security aspects to the ELB. Uh, it's a chalk talk, um, and if you have not already registered for it, uh, I encourage you to go take a look at that. It, it goes a little deeper into the security aspects that you can offload to ELB. So from an agenda perspective, we will be covering the different types of load balancers we have. When do you use one versus the other? Uh, once we do that, we will get into the three fundamental characteristics of a workload. Uh, by that, I mean the client connectivity, which is from your client to the load balancer. Then we will talk about the load balancer itself in terms of the request routing characteristics. And then finally, your backend targets and your applications. And, and together between these three, we will get deeper into some of the best practices. And then we will get into the health check configuration and how do you monitor your ELB workload um, and, and using CloudWatch metrics. That will be yet another thing that you can take a look at. So before we get into it, let's take a look at what are some of the fundamental benefits of ELB as a managed service. So the first thing is elasticity. As your traffic patterns go up or down, ELB will automatically scale up or scale down. Right? Without you needing to intervene, we take care of those traffic patterns for you. That's a huge benefit. So that's what we mean by elasticity, and that's a great benefit that you get with ELB. The next thing is security. Um, so you could offload things like TLS termination, um, authentication, AWS WAF, all these different aspects, you could offload that to ALB, um, and that's yet another benefit that you naturally get by, by offloading this functionality over to the load balancer. Integration, we, we talk to 14 other AWS services, right from auto-scaling to ECS to EKS to AWS config. We just talk to all these 14 services, and that's yet a, another benefit that you get by using ELB. And finally, cost effectiveness. So it's always cost effective to run your workload through an ELB versus trying to create a load balancer using EC2 instances yourself. So that's another, so this forms as the core benefits of just using ELB as a managed service. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what are the three types of load balancers that we have today. The first one is the application load balancer. This runs at layer seven, which means it load balances HTTP and HTTPS traffic. The network load balancer runs at layer four, which means it load balances traffic with this TCP and UDP traffic. And finally, we have the older classic load balancer, which does both layer four and layer seven. But our recommendation is use classic load balancer only if you have the older classic networking. If you're using VPC, then our recommendation is you use the newer application load balancer and network load balancer, because we have no fresh investment going on in classic load balancer. All the new features that you're going to see will be on the ALBs and NLBs. So let's take a look at the very high level overview of the differences between the three load balancers and when do you pick one versus the other. 
So one of the key things here is we will be going deeper into each of these areas, but this is just a very broad overview of how to think about the three load balancers, right? So if you take a look at the application load balancer, it works at the individual request level, right? And, and so in that sense, it supports protocols like HTTP, HTTPS, HTTP2 is yet another protocol we support on, on the application load balancers, and we also support WebSockets. So on the network load balancer, on the other hand, it works at the individual connection or the individual flow level. So in that sense, it's great when you want to just have a pass-through load balancer that can give you extremely high performance and very low latencies. Um, so one more thing uh, to cover here is that both the application load balancer and network load balancer actually support IPv6. So they support IPv6 to the front end, and that will be converted to v4 before sending it to your backend targets. Now let's come to the aspect of request routing itself in terms of the load balancer. So load, application load balancer supports advanced content-based routing features that are aimed at modern application architectures like containers and microservices. So in that sense, if you need advanced content-based routing features like host-based routing, path-based routing, that would be a reason to use your application load balancer. On the other hand, the network load balancer, as I told you before, whenever you need, you have volatile traffic patterns, you need extreme performance, that's when you would go in and leverage the network load balancer. And finally, when it comes to your backend targets and your backend applications, we support, uh, on both ALBs and NLBs, we support IP-based targets, we support EC2 instances, containers, um, and on the application load balancer, we also support Lambda functions as targets. So with that in mind, you know, that just kind of sets the stage you know, for us to go deeper into each of these areas. Uh, but the one important thing we will be doing is to actually create some kind of a framework for you, right? So that it's easy for you to conceptualize, visualize what, what to think of it when you say this is my load balancer and how do you go configure the right parameters for your ELB. And the other big thing that we will be covering today is if you have an issue with your load balancer, how do you go troubleshoot it? So, so we'll get a little deeper into each of those areas based on these three frameworks. First is connectivity. We'll talk about the best practices there. We'll get into health checks and we'll get a lot deeper into monitoring. So let's start off with client connectivity, right? So this is from the client to your load balancer. So in the case of ELB, we actually make use of what we call as the elastic network interface. And that's what we leverage to actually get into your VPC to be processing your workloads. And in that sense, each elastic network interface actually represents one IP. So it's at a bare minimum, what you will see with an ELB is one IP per subnet. On the other hand, the network load balancer leverages what we call as the AWS hyperplane architecture. And, and if you don't know what hyperplane is, I strongly encourage you to take a look at the two reInvent talks on hyperplane, which was I think given last year. Um, and with the hyperplane architecture that we leverage internally, network load balancer is able to give you a static IP per availability zone. And in addition, the extremely high performance that we get on the network load balancer is also because of hyperplane. So with that in mind, uh, let's take a look at basic ELB setup, right? So you have your client coming in and they are trying to resolve DNS. So they go into Route 53. They're trying to get the DNS with their domain, which is in this case, example loadbalancer.com. The DNS responds back with the C name of the load balancer. 
And once we get the C name, the client then resolves that to the IP address using DNS. Once it gets the IP addresses, that's what it's going to use to connect to the load balancer. So it goes in, it connects to that particular IP, it then sets up the TCP connection. So once the TCP connection is set up, it's actually going to send in the request, right? And as more requests come in, a single connection can actually send in a lot more requests, right? So with a TCP connection, one TCP connection can send in multiple HTTP requests through it. So now what happens is as more requests start coming in, um, as we connect to it, what's going to happen is your ELB is naturally going to scale up. Now as your ELB scales up, we are going to add new IP addresses, and these IP addresses are now returned by DNS. So the one question that, that would come to mind is what happens to the previous IP addresses that were pulled from DNS? So the one thing that we do is those IP addresses, even though they are not returned anymore by DNS, we actually hold on to them until such time that all traffic going to that particular IP address stops completely. So we do drain all the traffic and we ensure that those IPs still remain in service until such time there is zero traffic or zero connections that are going to be going to those old IPs. So that's just something to keep in mind because as ELB scales up or down, we manage all those things for you without you needing to worry about breaking old connections or breaking existing traffic when those IPs change. So I think this is exactly what I just told you about. Uh, so the next thing that we should talk about is what are some of the best practices, right? So the user connects, you know, gets the IP address, connects to it. Now, for some reason, if that particular connection to the first IP breaks, what do you do, right? In that case, what, if, the, if it is below the TTL cache, then what you do is you go in and use the second IP that was returned by DNS and try to connect using that particular IP. Now, let's assume that for some reason, that IP connection also fails. If it is above your TTL, then you should be refreshing DNS. And when you refresh DNS from a client perspective, it is going to return two new IPs. And if those IPs are healthy, then the client will try to connect to them. And let's say in this particular case that even that connection fails. Now that you have had multiple retry attempts and all of them failed, our recommendation as a best practice is to have the clients do something called as an exponential backoff, right? And add jitter on retries. And the way to do an exponential backoff typically is to just put a sleep in there um, and, and you could use something like that. But the one, one call out here is that ensure that you set a maximum cap on what that exponential backoff needs to be because you don't want to go in for hours without actually retrying from your client. So, so just make sure you're doing that. But as a best practice though, on multiple retry attempts, do set an exponential backoff and jitter um, as a best practice. So just to kind of summarize, right, use DNS, re-resolve DNS before reconnecting after failures, um, use an exponential backoff uh, on reconnect and add jitter to reconnect. And we also have a blog post uh, that goes a lot deeper into these areas uh, that I encourage you to go take a look at. So next, we're going to look at the load balancer itself. Now that we've seen some of the best practices from the client to the load balancer, let's take a look at the load balancer itself and talk about some of the request routing characteristics. So the first thing we'll cover is about the classic load balancer request routing. So on the classic load balancer, the one big thing here is that to understand, the good point to understand here is there is a one-to-one -one mapping between your front-end listener port and your back-end. 
right? And what that means is that if you need to have applications like containers where you're going to be rewriting ports and where you're going to be reusing multiple ports on the same instance on your backend target, on a classic load balancer, because of this limitation of the one-to-one limitation, you're going to need to have multiple classic load balancers, which means for each container, you need to have a unique classic load balancer. That's, that's how you would have to set it up because there's a one-to-one mapping. The other key thing difference is that we have only a single port that you can use for your health checks on classic load balancer, which means if that port were to go down, your applications, all your applications on any port, we will be stop, we will be not sending traffic to those particular backend applications. So there's something to keep in mind that there is a one-to-one mapping between your front-end port and back-end port on the classic load balancers. And when we go to the application load balancer, we will talk about how that differs from your classic load balancer. So the other thing is in terms of the algorithm itself that we use. So on the classic load balancer, when it does layer seven, we use least outstanding requests. And when we do layers four, we actually use round robin as the algorithm. So now let's compare application load balancer on the same characteristics that we saw for a classic load balancer. But before we get into that, let's talk about why did we actually go build an application load balancer? So the first thing to note is that a lot of customers actually used to leverage the ELB sandwich model, is what we like to call it, which is you have the clients connecting to a classic load balancer, which then goes to a bunch of application servers, and each of these servers then maps to an individual ELB that then fronts your web server. So what does this mean in in the real world? It's basically a very layered architecture where you have an application load balancer or or a classic load balancer fronting a bunch of proxies that you would need to have. And then these proxies then connect to individual ELBs that are fronting your service. So the problem here is that a lot of customers came to us and said, hey, you know, we need to manage all of these proxies ourselves. We need to do the security patches, bug fixes, OS updates, the scaling. All of those management falls on us and, and that gets us away from actually working on our application and the business logic. That's where we went in and built the application load balancer. So that multi-layer approach that you saw, all of that kind of collapses into one layer in between, that is the application load balancer. And the other advantage of the application load balancer is also support microservices and containers. So let's take a logical view of what this ALB is about, right? So what are the resources available? So we have what we call listeners, we have rules, and then we have this concept of target groups. So think of target groups as uh, an application stack that you can build. You can have multiple of these application stacks um, on your ALB. So the same port mapping that we talked about on the classic load balancer, where there's a one-to-one port mapping. On the ALB, let's take a look at the listener port 443, right? So the traffic is coming onto listener port 443. On your ALB, you can now map that to multiple ports on your backend which means you can use this concept of rules and you can use rules to say, I want to have the same traffic kind of mapped to multiple target groups, which is ideal for use cases like containers where you need to reuse multiple ports on the same instance. Um, So what do you mean by rules, right? So we support a bunch of content-based routing rules. Uh, These include host header-based routing, we support path-based routing, Uh, We support any header routing. Um, HTTP methods is another one that we support. We support query params, query strings, and source IP addresses. So you could use any of these fields um, to set the logic up to say, when a request comes in, I'm gonna route a request to a particular target group 
based on this particular logic. So it gives you a lot of flexibility um, in that sense. So let's take a look at this, right? So I could have up to 100 rules, um, and each of these rules could have up to five matches. I could have five wildcards per rule, uh, and you can combine these rules as needed, right? So in this particular case, I could have a condition that says if my host header or, my, or any header for that matter matches a particular condition, then I would go in and take any one of these actions. So we support forward action, we support a redirect, a fixed response, and authenticate as an action. Here's another example of what it might look like uh, for your given application. So you have the methods, you have the path there, you have the query parameters, um, you have the host header, the headers at the bottom. You could use any one of these as your request routing characteristic that you could use, um, and you can do the request-based routing. So now let's talk about two other features that we have. One is called redirects. So with redirects, it's actually a pretty popular feature. A lot of customers leverage this, where you can offload the redirection from a port 80 to port 443 on the load balancer itself. So you might mandate that any request coming to you needs to be always HTTPS as an example. In that case, what we do is we send a 302 back to the client and have that redirect back on port 443. So that's already built in. You can leverage that functionality on the load balancer. The other piece is fixed response. So with fixed response, let's take an example, right? So in the previous case, I told you that you can now use IP address headers as another way of routing your request. So what you could do is you could say, if my request is coming from, from a particular IP address range, what you could then do is you could say, don't even bother sending this request to my backend application. Instead, right at the load balancer level itself, you could block the request and you could send a fixed response back to the client. So it's a great way of filtering traffic and ensuring you don't even reach your backend application and have the load balancer send a fixed response back to the client. So that functionality is also available on ALB. The next thing we should be talking about is SNI. That's another capability that we have available on ALB. And what does SNI do? It allows you to have multiple domains on the same load balancer. Right? So you might have example1.com, example2.com, um, and so on, and you want all of them to be on the same load balancer. Um, and in this case, what we leverage is what we call SNI. And SNI is supported by all modern web browsers supported. And we leverage that SNI header to know which certificate are we going to serve up to the client. So on the ALB, we also support a smart certificate selection algorithm built into SNI. And what that does is it automatically picks the right cert for you. So if you think about it, for a given domain, if you had an RSA cert and you have an ECDSA cert, we would automatically serve the right cert based on the client connectivity. So what is optimized for the client is the cert that we would serve. So that's yet the capability that's available. Now, in this example, as you can see here, I have nine different domains, um, right, which includes the root domains. Um, and what I do is I just put up nine certs on my load balancer and not have to worry about it because it would automatically serve the right cert for me. Here's another example for our demo site. Um, the, we had all these domains. Uh, it automatically picked the right cert, uh, and it ensured that the connection was secure. Also, this is another example where we have what we call as a predefined security policy or the default security policy on the load balancer. Um, and what we do for the default security policy is we automatically pick the right ciphers and protocols. And the way we pick this is we actually run those policies through Amazon.com traffic. 
and we pick the right mix of ciphers and protocols based on client connectivity and optimization for security. And if you were to do the same, which we did for our demo site, we left it to the default security policy uh, and we landed up getting a rating um, from SSL Labs and we were able to get a grade A rating from SSL Labs. So, so that's yet another thing that you can offload. You don't need to get into the workings of Cypher's protocols. You can just offload that to the load balancer. So now let's talk about another uh, feature we just launched a week back, which we are super excited about. Uh, and this is called the Weighted Target Groups. So before this feature was actually launched, um, one of the big things was you could only have a rule uh, go to a single target group. So the big thing there, the big difficulty there was for use cases where you need to separate bot scrollers or you, you need to do A-B testing or blue-green deployments, uh, it was a restriction because the only way you could actually do that before was you needed to set up two different application load balancers. You needed to then have DNS uh, go between them, um, right, between your blue stack and the green stack. And then it was an atomic flick, which means you could go only from zero to 100%. There was no way for you to wait the traffic out. But now with the new uh, weighted target group support, what you could do is you could have a single rule that could go to multiple target groups. Right? And, and the big advantage there is you can now set your weights up. You can say, I want 30 requests to go to my stack one. I, I have 70 requests going to stack two. And that's a big advantage that you have now um, with the weighted target groups feature. And what are some of the use cases? The blue-green deployments is something we just discussed. Hybrid deployments is yet another use case that, this, uh, that it helps with, where you could have resources that are residing on-prem you could be using IP-based targets for those, and then you could have AWS resources sitting on EC2, and then you can wait away traffic as needed with the percentage split of anywhere from zero to 100% uh, between both those stacks. Finally, A-B testing is yet another feature that this thing unblocks because you can now do web labs, you can do A-B testing uh, using this feature. Um, and the other thing we also added with this feature is something called this target group level stickiness. Um, and what does that help you with is if you have the weighted target group set up and then you have a user A who is going to experience A, with target group level stickiness, you can ensure that that user A is always going to get that same experience. You don't want them to suddenly flip to experience B, right? So, so target group level stickiness has been enabled with this feature, so you can leverage that as well. So let's take a look at how the API model looks like. So from an API model perspective, um, you know, previously you could do a type of forward action, but that forward action could only go to one target group. But now you can literally go up to five different target groups, each having its own weight, like what I'm showing here, a weight 90, a weight 10. And then that's where the target group level stickiness comes in, where you can set up a duration for how long that cookie needs to be active for. The next thing we're going to talk about is the algorithm that we actually have on the application load balancer. So last week, we launched another algorithm for the application load balancer, which is the least outstanding request algorithm. Uh, and this is great if you have an application or a workload where you have your backend targets getting traffic that keeps changing patterns, right? And then the second big thing is, if you have an application where your targets keep coming and leaving, like containers, 
least outstanding request actually performs really well for those applications. So with that, essentially, you know, if you had an older application on classic load balancer that you couldn't migrate to, to the application load balancer because we did not have the support for least outstanding requests, you can now go ahead and migrate those applications over to ALB because we now have the support for this. So now on the application load balancer, you have a choice between going with round robin that we had support before, slow start, or least outstanding requests depending on your use case and workload that you want to leverage this for. So the other part of it is um, if you're running Kubernetes, um, you can leverage all this functionality we discussed with something called as an ALB ingress controller. Um, and this is supported for Kubernetes. It's ready for production workloads. Uh, this is maintained by AWS. So, uh, so the good part here is you know, anytime we come up with new features, we do a very quick, fast follow-up on the ALB ingress controller as well. So if you have a Kubernetes workload, um, we encourage you to go try out the ALB ingress controller, and it's ready for production workloads as well. So now let's take a look at your backend targets, right? So we spoke about the client connectivity. We spoke about the load balancer itself. Now let's take a look at your backend targets. So on ALB today, we support containers, Lambda, EC2 instances, and IP-based targets. But before we go a little deeper into each of those areas, let's talk about one more piece that you should all be aware of, which is on both your application load balancer and classic load balancer, we actually reuse backend ports. And what that means is you might have thousands of connections coming in on your front end, but we map them all into a few tens of connections on the backend. So we do reuse a lot of ports on the backend, which is great for your application because you can focus on your application rather than worrying about the networking layer because we reuse all those ports and, and that is really useful when you think about your backend application itself. So just something to keep in mind, don't be surprised when you see thousands of connections coming in, but you might see only a few connections being used for your backend applications. And that's because we optimize it and we actually reuse those ports on the backend. So now given that, let's take a look at the Lambda support. So we support Lambda as a target. Again, a very popular feature. A lot of our customers leveraging this. And what this gives you is the ability to have a single HTTP endpoint for both your server and serverless. Right? And with, with something like weighted target groups also supported now, you could have a target group with Lambda, you could have a target group with EC2 instances, and you can go back and forth between servers and serverless if you so wished. And the way you would normally do this is you would create a Lambda function, you would register that with a target group type called Lambda, and then once you register that, you would then simply set your content-based routing rules to go into a Lambda function. The one note here is you need to ensure that you have the service principle set up so that the ELB ARN or your target group ARN can actually go invoke that particular Lambda function. The other option is you could actually go right into the Lambda console, and within the Lambda console, you now have application load balancer as a trigger for your Lambda function readily available as well. Finally, the other thing is we also support JSON serialization. So what we do is we take all those requests coming in. Before we pass them on to your Lambda function, we, we do a JSON serialization, pass them on to your Lambda function, and then on your response pack as well, we convert that back to HTTP before sending it back to your client. Some of the limits that you should be aware of is we have a one megabyte limit on the request response. Uh, the second thing is your the Lambda function and ALB must be in the same AWS account. Binary responses uh, need to be base64 encoded, 
And then you should be enabling multi-value headers if you want to use arrays instead of strings. So now that we have looked at Lambda, the next big thing we should talk about is what are the other types of targets we support, right? So we support instances, um, which is we, we would always load balance to your primary ETH0 interface on your backend instance. But what if you had multiple ENIs on the same instance? How would you load balance there? That's where we support IPv4. So you can set up any IPv4 address as long as it's within that RFC range, uh, and you can leverage that to load balance as well. And this can also be used if you have on-prem targets that, you're, that you want to load balance to using a DX connection or a VPN connection as well. The other piece is we also support VPC peering, which means you can have your targets in other VPCs within the same region, or you can have these targets in another region completely. As long as those VPCs are peered, you can actually load balance to those targets using your ALBs. Containers we already touched upon, so I'm not gonna go a lot deeper into that. The next piece we're gonna talk about is security, and what are some of the best practices from a security standpoint? So from a security aspect, we support um, what we call as the, the whole TLS termination piece we talked about. We support AWS WAF, uh, we support authentication, um, we support AWS config, um, and we'll get into a lot more detail with each of these. So the first thing is we talked about TLS termination and how you can offload that onto the load balancer. The one thing to note here is we support a whole bunch of predefined security policies. And the advantage there is you can decide how stringent you want to be. Like you might decide, I want to only support TLS 1.2 and greater, and, and that's all I want to connect with. You can pick that particular stringent predefined policy. Or you might say, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm okay even if I go down to a 1.1, uh, then you have a policy there that's available that allows you to do that. Or you might need something like a forward secrecy policy. Um, in that case, we also have a policy that's specific to forward secrecy. So it gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of without you needing to getting deeper into Cypher's protocols and understanding that, you could just pick one of these policies depending on how strict you want to be. Um, and that's yet another advantage available. Now, the other thing is we also integrate with ACM. Um, and with ACM, you get a lot of benefits like certificate renewal. Uh, not needing to bother about expiry of certs. All that is taken care of you by ACM itself, and we seamlessly integrate with ACM. So the next thing to talk about is this whole, uh, whole notion of security groups, right? So as a best practice, what we recommend is to put your public-facing load balancer in a public subnet, and then your backend targets in a private subnet. And once you do that, the next thing you should be doing is setting up a security group on the load balancer itself, that allows traffic only from certain CIDR ranges. And then what you could do is on your backend target, you could simply reference the security group that you just created on your load balancer. And what that does is it ensures that only traffic from the load balancer can get to your backend targets and no client can directly hit your backend target. So, so that's just as a best practice, um, that, that's something that you should be looking to do. The next thing we're gonna talk about is AWS WAF, right? So, Application Load Balancer seamlessly integrates with AWS WAF. This gives you a scalable custom rules engine where you can go in and write hundreds of rules, um, and these updation to rules happens within less than a minute. Uh, this gives you ability to prevent things like cost-write scripting, 
or if you want to prevent things like um, uh, flood attacks, you know, any of these, you could uh, SQL injection attacks, you could prevent those by writing your scalable custom rules. You can use any of the request, any part of the request to set up these rules, or you might simply want to filter based on a particular criteria. It gives you a lot of flexibility. The other thing is we also launched something called as AWS Managed Rules last week, uh, and this gives you the ability to offload the rules part onto AWS, and we use our Amazon Threat Intelligence to automatically update those rules for you while you focus on your backend application. We also integrate with AWS Marketplace sellers like F5 and Fortinet, um, and you can bring in their rules as well into AWS WAF. And finally, we have advanced automation through API where we have a ready cloud formation template that is available for you that you can leverage, uh, and that uses a combination of Lambda functions and log-based analysis to prevent things like HTTP flood attacks. Finally, authentication. This is yet another capability that's available for you on the application load balancer that you can offload your authentication from your backend application to the load balancer. We talk to any OIDC-based identity provider. Uh, we talk to AWS Cognito that gives us things like federation using SAML identities or, or social media-based identities. So it gives you a lot of capability to offload this as well onto the load balancer without having it on your backend application. With that, let me hand it off to Zop to talk about NLB, metrics, and health checks. Thanks, Narayan. Hey, everyone. Uh, today, let's talk about Network Load Balancer now. So logically, Network Load Balancer is very similar to Application Load Balancer. The main difference is that after the listener, we don't have those rules. And that's because we're not actually diving into the packet. We're not looking at the actual application protocol. We're just routing the connections or flows. We do support the same types of targets in general, where you can have EC2 instances as instance-type target groups, or you can do IP-type target groups. We still support containers, um, EC2 instances, and the same kinds of routing as application load balancer. One of the biggest advantages of using network load balancer is that you can ch choose your own elastic IP address, and you get one static IP address per availability zone that doesn't change for the life of the load balancer. When you create your load balancer, you can pick an elastic IP from your pool, or you can let us assign one from our pool. The main difference there is that if you use your own elastic IP, then when you delete the load balancer, you get to keep it. Whereas if you use one of ours, it releases back to our account. We just launched a feature where you can choose your own private IP address on your internal network load balancer. This is useful if you want to use the same IP for certain services and expose them via network load balancer. This is also useful for another feature we just launched where you can add a new subnet to an existing network load balancer. So if this is an internal network load balancer, you can add a subnet and choose the private IP. If it's a public load balancer, you can choose the elastic IP. Now let's look a little bit about how network load balancer routes connections. So in this example, we've got a client connecting to the network load balancer. It's generating a ephemeral source port, connecting to the listener port of the load balancer. We are using an instance type target group and the target will see the actual IP address and port that the client sent to the load balancer because we're gonna preserve that all the way through. The flow on the network load balancer will actually show the whole mapping and it will continue sending the traffic to the same target using AWS Hyperplane. For TLS termination, we also do this. So we're actually not passing the connection all the way through like we are on TCP and UDP listeners. We are terminating the connection, establishing an SSL connection with the client and then making a new connection to the backend, but we still preserve the source IP. 
This changes a little bit when we use IP target type target groups. And that's because we're gonna use the network load balancer's private IP and the random ephemeral ports the network load balancer will generate. So if you look at the TCP state on the back end, you're gonna see the IP address and port that the network load balancer used to connect. And of course the network load balancer is still tracking the flow. This is useful for one of those ELB sandwiches when you're using a firewall that may not support FQDN as a target, which is required for classic or application load balancer firewall or routing. However, for network load balancer, you can also have the incoming IP address of the client connection directly on the firewall, which is useful for firewall rules. And then the firewall can send the connection to the static IP of an internal network load balancer for further processing. So one of the big advantages of network load balancer is that we can support infinite, potentially infinitely long-lived connections. So it's designed using AWS Hyperplane to remember the state of a connection, even if the resource routing that connection gets removed via scaling or failure. The next packet on that connection will get routed from EC2 software-defined network to an EC2 hyperplane to a new routing resource, which will see that it doesn't have that connection, look it up in the shared memory store, and then continue routing it. This is really useful if you have something like IoT devices where you may have home automation or security cameras or TVs or other devices that need to have long-lived connection and bi-directional communication. You can establish these connections through a network load balancer, and as long as the client, the network, and the, the target are all active and don't drop the connection, this connection can last potentially forever. Another thing this gives us is the ability to scale out transparently. So you saw an application in Classic Load Balancer where we have new IPs coming into DNS as we scale. On Network Load Balancer, we don't need to do this because we can add new resources underneath the hood and integrate them all with Hyperplane and keep the established connections and the existing IP address. Recently, we launched UDP listeners on Network Load Balancer. This is what we call a stateful load balancing of UDP connections. Um, as everyone knows, UDP connections are not stateful, but this happens because we're gonna use the source IP address and the source port of the UDP connection to choose a target. So the same source IP and the same source port will flow hash to the same target consistently. This is useful if you have uh, IoT, media, um, directory, or DNS. So you can also preserve the source IP address of the UDP target to your instance type target groups. One more use case for network load balancer is to use it with AWS private link. So your service behind a network load balancer can be exposed through a private link endpoint, and your clients could be in different VPCs in your same account, in other accounts, it could be a service you're vending externally, and they could do something like ship all their access logs to your UDP, or not, sorry, to your TCP network load balancer. It doesn't support UDP uh, on private link. You can also use Network Load Balancer to expose your service, uh, your Kubernetes service. And when you do this, you'll get one IP address per service, and it's currently in beta, and the URL is here, and it'll be included in the slides, which we'll publish. So to recap, NLB is a lot like ALB. It just doesn't have that inspection of the layer seven traffic. It's just routing the flows for the TCP or the UDP or the combined TCP UDP. You get your static IP address. We preserve source IPs. It has potential for long-lived connections and you have instantaneous scaling, and you can use Kubernetes. So with that, let's move on and talk a little bit about health checks. So a health check 
is something that exists within the data plane. And at AWS, we talk a lot about control planes versus data planes. We separate responsibilities, and the data plane is the thing that needs to be up for the application that is running to work. And a health check is something that's within the data plane, used to detect failures downstream, and then route around them. It's also an explicit indication that whatever is passing the health check is willing and ready to accept new requests. We use two kinds of health checks at Elastic Load Balancers. For all our Elastic Load Balancers, we have an external Route 53 health check that's gonna health check every IP address that we put into DNS. And then we have the target health checks, which is the load balancer health checking the targets and deciding which ones are healthy and available for routing requests. And again, passing a health check means please send me new requests. So let's look at Route 53 health checks. This is an external view of the health of the network load balancer by IP address. Each load balancer will return a response to Route 53 and Route 53 will detect failures in network connectivity or if the load balancer fails its health check. There are cases where the network load balancer will intentionally fail the health check even though it may be healthy and those are related to not having healthy targets that it can route to. So if you have a target group where all of the targets are completely unhealthy or you have only empty target groups or on a classic load balancer all of your backends are unhealthy, then we will intentionally fail our Route 53 health check. When we fail our Route 53 health check, Route 53 will not return the IP address that failed in the DNS response. And of course, using CrossZone will increase our availability here. Let's take a look at an example of how this might look. So here we have an application load balancer with four IPs in DNS. Each of those IPs is currently 100% healthy in Route 53. If you query DNS, you're going to get all four IP addresses back. Now, one note here is that Route 53 is configured to return at most eight IP addresses for a single load balancer. So if your load balancer has more than eight IPs, which can occur because of scaling, you will only get a maximum of eight at a time. And that's because we're trying to stay within one UDP packet. If one of these IPs becomes unhealthy, then Route 53 will not return it in DNS responses until it becomes healthy again. If all of the IP addresses are healthy, Route 53 will actually fail open, returning all of the IP addresses as if they were healthy. Now, if you're using Route 53 calculated health checks and you're including a load balancer, this would still fail that health check while returning all the responses for DNS queries directly to its record. So let's look now at target health checks. First, let's look at the types of target health checks we have on our load balancers and what they actually mean. So a TCP health check is just a light three-way handshake. It's just validating that your instance is up and running or the target is up and running and something's listening on the port where we're connecting. It's not a very uh, high bar to pass. Uh, TLS is a little bit higher of a bar because we're not only negotiating that TCP connection, we're negotiating SSL and confirming that something is actually responding. HTTP, HTTPS health checks will do all of that combined with an actual request and then check the response to make sure it's a valid HTTP uh, success response. These can be a deep or a light health check depending on what you configure the application that's returning the response. When you're configuring your health checks, you've got a few different options. The main ones are that you can configure the interval and the timeout. And the interval is how long between health checks and the timeout is how long we'll wait after sending the health check until we get a response to consider it unhealthy if it doesn't uh, respond within that time. Then you can configure the unhealthy and healthy threshold and we covered the, TC or the types of health checks. One of the big differences between application network load balancer and classic load balancer is that ALB and NLB are gonna help check every single target that they could route traffic to from each IP address in the load balancer. 
These are independent health checks to each target. And if you have cross zone enabled, you're going to get health checks from every zone to every target. This contrasts with classic load balancer, where you get to describe or you get to set one health check port or URL, and all instances registered will get the same health check. And that health check controls traffic for every port. So if you, like in this example, have three listeners that end in 80, 8080, and 8081 on your back end, then the 80 and 80 configured for the health check, the 80 health check will govern the health of whether all those other ones will get traffic or not. If 80 fails, the other ports will not get new traffic, even if they're healthy. And if the opposite happens, where the other ports are unhealthy, but your 80 is still passing, you'll still get traffic sent to those other ports as if they were healthy. Depending on how your backends respond when they're unhealthy, you're either going to see request failures or you're gonna see them pile up in the surge queue. So in summary, each load balancer IP will health check every target that it could route traffic to, and the health check will include cross zone. We emit all of this to metrics, and the CLB will only health check one health check per load balancer. NLB and ALB are gonna directly health check each target that's registered by default. You can override this on the target group level and configure each target group to have a different default behavior, in addition to every single target. That when you register it, you can pick which kind of health check you want for it. Let's talk a little bit about handling failures and configuring our health checks. So the second best Werner quote I could find after everything fails all the time is that we all wanna build 100% highly available systems, but you can plan, you can be guaranteed that the next failure will happen. This next slide really could be an entire presentation all its own, and maybe next year we'll make it one, but I just wanted to talk briefly about which things you wanna think about when you're thinking about insuring your applications. The first thing you want to do is identify your critical and non-critical components of your application. If this, if this is something like a web page, you may have one part of the web page which must always be included for a response to be considered successful and other parts that maybe aren't required. Then you want to look at your application timeouts and you want to configure these to decrease as they go into your stack. So you don't want to spend 60 seconds on a database query if your timeout from your client is a couple seconds. Then you're gonna to wanna to put uh, your architectural priorities into your metrics, your alarms, and your dashboards, and of course your operational on-call runbooks. Let's look at one of these failure patterns um, that we're gonna look at dealing with where you're having a cascading failure. This is a death spiral where you may have one target get overloaded and fail its health check. And as it fails its health check, we're going to stop sending new requests to it, which may cause the other targets to get more traffic, causing them to also fall over, and then until all of them uh, fail. One of the patterns for dealing with this is a brownout, where you're gonna say, I want my application to try as hard as it can, and we're going to launch auto-scaling or something else to try to scale us out of this pain. Another one is a blackout, where you wanna say, I'm going to fail away completely as soon as we have any sign of problem, or terminate the failing resources. You know you're in a blackout strategy if you already have a standby load balancer up and running with targets behind it and you have DNS set up to flip automatically to it. We get a lot of questions about how should I configure my health checks and it's a very hard thing to actually give general guidance for. So in the vein of blackout versus brownout, these are high level general health check configurations that you can use that may be applicable to your workload. Definitely want to test these and also think about the different failure conditions and which part are critical and not critical. 
So let's look at some of our CloudWatch metrics that we give you. And we're gonna focus mostly on application load balancer because it gives you the most metrics. We're gonna divide these into three different groups. So we're gonna look at our workload metrics, our load balancer metrics, and then our target metrics. Our first workload metric is our request count. And our request count is gonna be how many requests the load balancer is receiving from clients. So for a ALB, this is going to be how many HTTP requests we received from the clients. In this example, we're doing 1.1 million per second, roughly. And on to process bytes, we're doing about two gigabits per second here. This is our second workload metric. This is gonna tell us how much data the, the load balancer itself is actually processing for the clients. So one note about process bytes, this is what application and classic and network load balancers bill you for. However, it's separate from the data transfer that EC2 bills you for, and we bill for it slightly differently because we're only billing for the payload. So there may be network traffic that is not part of a payload, and that includes the TCP packet overhead in addition to SSL negotiations. This all comes together to give you your consumed LCU. Since on application and network load balancer, we bill you by LCU, which are comprised of new connections per second, active connections, and then bandwidth. And we don't bill you for each of those, we bill you for whichever one of those was the highest during a given hour. You can see here that this is the same time frame, and it actually had a different pattern of consumed LCU, and that's because we were using more connections during the high periods, even though we were sending the same numbers of requests. You could merge these together onto a graph, but as you can see here, this isn't a very useful graph because everything's on the same axis. It's very useful to split your graphs into multiple axes, and you have, on this case, your consumed LCU on the right and your request and bandwidth on the left. Now let's look at your EOB metrics. These are the things that tell you how well your workload is being processed as viewed from the load balancer. In this case, we have our HTTP status code metrics, and we're looking primarily for this workload, 200 level errors are the ones that are, or 200 level responses are the ones that are going to say our application is working successfully, and we have far, many, far, far more of those, and so they're graphed on one axis, then we have errors. The errors are gonna be the 400 level errors or the 500 level errors. When EOB emits 400 level errors, that means it received a connection from a client or a request that had a problem with and didn't think was valid, and it rejected it. When it, when it emits a 500 level metric, it's also returning that response to your client. And for application load balancer, we actually emit these for each 500 level. So instead of just having the 5XX, you have a 500, a 502, a 503, and a 504 metric individually for each response code. The load balancer is going to emit these 500s when it has connectivity problems to the back end. Now, the next ELB metric we're gonna look at is connections. This is how many of those connections you're going to be getting from your clients to the load balancer, that, and then from the load balancer to the client. It's also going to include things like TLS negotiation errors, connect errors, um, and then we can also look at the number of active connections versus new connections. You can see here we have a huge spike in our target connection error count. We'll get to that a little bit more later, but something obviously went wrong at this, at this point in time with the load balancer talking to the targets. You can put this all together in a dashboard, and we'll have another dashboard later that shows a little more detail, but this can include a summary of your current workload, and you should have a dashboard like this for each of your stacks that you can go to when you have a problem with that stack where you can begin troubleshooting. Let's look now at target metrics. So your target metrics are gonna be your healthy, unhealthy, and your latency metrics. And in this case, you can actually see that at the time of that big spike in target connection errors, we also lost the entire red section. 
We graph this by availability zone so we can see how healthy each availability zone is and compare it to others. So at this point in time, we had a drop in healthy hosts and a big spike in unhealthy hosts. And then after the spike, we don't recover that availability zone. That's because all of the hosts in this availability zone died at the exact same time. Now, our target response times and metrics are going to be our error connection counts and our latency. So the latency metrics, we actually give you percentile metrics. If you don't use percentile metrics now, Brendan Gregg has a great talk on learning and using percentile metrics. They're very useful. But the short version is P50 is going to be roughly your average, and it's going to tell you how well your workload is doing for most of your users or most of your requests. P99 is going to tell you the almost worst case, because the worst case could be significantly worse. It could be the one request that was much worse than everything else, whereas P99 is going to be the ones that are closer to that. And we also have multiple points, so you can do P99, P99.9, et cetera. When you graph these on CloudWatch, you can also use your mouse and, and see, dive in and drill to different points of the data. And you can graph these so that you have them on different axis. So you can watch your P50 at the same time as your P90 or your P99. And you can graph these per availability zone. So bringing this all back together, we had a problem on this load balancer where we had a, all the backends in one availability zone experience a failure and reject connections from the load balancer for a brief period of time. During that time, we served a whole bunch of 5XX from the ELB, and then a couple of minutes later recovered as the load balancer detected those targets unhealthy and shifted traffic elsewhere. One of the questions we get a lot from customers is, when should I open a support case and say, hey, I think my ELB is broken, or help me with this ELB problem, and when should I continue investigating or suspect it's my application? Um, the general advice is that if you see it in one availability zone or specifically from one of the EOB's IP addresses, then open a support case and definitely investigate because we usually only experience problems in a single availability zone. If you see the same thing in all availability zones or even across multiple load balancers to the same targets or for the same requests, continue digging in on that because it may not be the load balancer. Finally, wrapping everything together, we can have a nice dashboard that you can use for your on-calls to look at when you experience a problem. These are interactive dashboards, so you can click on graphs and zoom in and drag different time periods and then use those mouse over so you can see everything. And this is all included with your load balancer. The CloudWatch metrics are one minute dimension. You don't pay anything extra for them and there's a whole bunch of them available to you. Before we go, want to call out that we have a lot of this content and a lot of good information in our network content delivery uh, training, which is free, and you can find it this URL. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Hope you guys had, are having a good reInvent so far and have a great reInvent.